Amen. Let's, let's give him our hearts today in prayer as we prepare to go to his word and have his spirit speak to us. God, we thank you for this Christmas Sunday to celebrate, to rejoice, not just a baby in a manger, but the Savior of the world. And today, Lord, we are each aware of our need for the Savior. Lord, as we look at our broken world, as we look at the pain in our own lives, the challenges that we face, we give you thanks and praise today that you are the Savior, that you've come to restore things to your good plan, that you've come to mend up the brokenhearted, that you've come to lift the burdens of those that are heavy laden. And so we come today to find rest in your presence, to receive the grace and mercy that you offer to us today. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is here. We thank you for your word. We pray now that you would uh, speak through your word to our hearts today, that we would be changed in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team, for leading us to King Jesus today. You know, this morning, a couple hours ago, it was like uh, it's described here in 1 Corinthians 14. I was thinking of this verse, which is in a a chapter that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, um, all about the different gifts that exist within, he calls it the body of Christ. Kind of like, you know, your, your physical body, everything works together. You need all those tendons and ligaments and nerves and synapses and blood vessels and lungs to suck oxygen in. You need it all working together. Otherwise, it's not going to be a good day. And that's how the body of Christ is as well. There's lots of different body parts that work together. And when it when it works correctly, it's, it's like a well-oiled machine, you know? I don't, I'm not really feeling that way my, myself today. Some aches and pains and, and some red eyes. But ideally, it should all flow together with Christ as the head. So here's what it says in uh, chapter 14, verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And this morning, you know, we've got trailers getting backed up to the door. We've got Christmas decorations coming in the front and back door. Goodies and, and coffee getting set up. Worship team members pulling cords. D- lights, cameras, photo booth. Man, there's just stuff happening all over. Kids ministry space. Pretty exciting. And so thank you to all who are using those gifts for building up the body and edifying. And you know what? If you didn't get a chance to use a gift like that yet today... You may have a word, a prayer to offer of encouragement after church. Um, We don't need to tear down so you don't get to help out with that. But um, look for those. those (laughs) The SWAT team ministry is like super excited about that part. Uh, But, you know, look for that gift that God has given to you to be a blessing to serve, to build up the body. That's exciting to be a part of a church family. So today we're, we're continuing our Christmas sermon series looking at uh, our need for the Savior. And, you know, I was talking to the Greenfields before church today and Bob and Rose had this ongoing debate about the, the, uh, the appropriateness in the nativity scene of having the three wise men there. And I think Lee and Erica had some opinions to offer on that as well. But, you know, we had come up with a, an idea of maybe the wise men should actually be in the neighbor's yard a couple houses down. Because really, you know, when you're reading Matthew chapter 2 and you're looking at where are the wise men, you know, on the day of Jesus' birth there in the manger, they're actually not really there with the gold frankincense and myrrh yet. They're having a conversation with Herod about, you know, we've followed this star from the east and we've got here, where's this new king that's been born? And so I think it is a, it is a good reminder that as we look at that nativity scene, 
to go back to God's word as our source of truth. You know, not just the, the tradition, not just the ideas that we've had from the past, but to always be coming back to have a God-centered view on reality, not a man-centered view. And all the, the tradition is, is great, and there's some nostalgia that comes with that. And yet, it's a good reminder that at Christmas time and all around the year, we need to come and humbly submit ourselves to the God who reveals himself most clearly in his son Jesus and also in his word where we encounter the Jesus that actually exists, not just our idea of him. And so today we're going to look at maybe an aspect of the Christmas story that is a little um, non-traditional. Tomorrow at our Christmas Eve service, 5 o'clock, we'll have a one-hour service, but we'll go through some of those traditional passages early in Luke's Gospel and in Matthew's Gospel that remind us of all those elements of the Christmas story. But today, we're actually going to take communion together. That's, that's the end of the Christmas story. That doesn't come till the end of those four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And really, the birth of the Savior, it, it's, it's a whole package deal. It's not just that baby in a manger, but it's the faithful life. It's the healing. It's the words of truth. It's the fulfillment of all that God had in plan since the beginning of time. It culminates on the cross We've got a cross in our Christmas decorations today because as we celebrate Christmas, it's with that rich, full meaning of the king who was born, the kingdom of God which is established, the invitation to each of us to join that kingdom and not to have our allegiances connected to the kingdoms of this earth. And so there's a, there's a need for a savior that's more than just the baby in the manger. You know, as you look at those Christmas story. So really, we have four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection at the beginning of your New Testament, the second half of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Two of those gospel writers gloss right over the Christmas story. Man, bah humbug, right? Mark, you know, he doesn't even, he doesn't even mention Christmas. He skips Christmas. Mark, what's up with that? And he starts with Jesus' baptism and temptation. So that's the beginning of Mark's gospel. John, you know, if you read really carefully, he may have the Christmas story in there in this one sentence. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. End of story. There's no, there's no wise men. There's no manger scene. That's John's version of the, of the Christmas story. It's kind of a theological statement that, you know, God steps into human history at this moment. Now let's get on to the good parts about Jesus' faithful life and his death and resurrection. So really, Matthew and Luke are the two that we look at at Christmas time as we celebrate the arrival of the Savior. But there's a chapter in, in, the, gospel, in, the, in the Christmas story that Matthew tells that we also are not real, you know, it doesn't make it into the, the nativity scene either. Uh, Matthew chapter 2 is really the dark side of the Christmas story. The predominant figure in Matthew 2 is Herod. He orders the, the, the murder of all the innocent children in Bethlehem, ages two and under. So for him, the Christmas story is a threat to his own power. And he decides to uh, try to take that power into his own hands by eliminating the threat. And there's weeping and there's sorrow as that scene unfolds. You know, we don't have in our manger scene, off to the side, Herod with a knife and a bunch of weeping women in Bethlehem although that would be fitting with the, the Christmas story. 
And I think Matthew 2 is a stark reminder of the need for the Savior, just how dark our world is. Tyranny, pain, sorrow, abuse of power. This is what we do left to our own devices. We hurt ourselves and we hurt others. And that's a part of the Christmas story. So I think in contrast to those dark parts of our world, we're going we're to skip ahead a couple chapters to Matthew 4 today. That's a chapter we're going to camp out in together, which is really this power struggle now brought to a head as Satan is tempting Jesus, and Jesus is replying to each of those temptations as they come, and then really the beginning of Jesus' ministry as he begins to proclaim truth, as he begins to call disciples to himself. So it's a little bit further on than what we would typically look at in a Christmas sermon, but I think it really sets up well our full understanding of this need for the Savior that we have. So we're going to read together in Matthew chapter 4. I encourage you to turn there or, or the words will be on the screen as well. So it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him alone you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Three specific temptations that the adversary, Satan, brings to Jesus, and we'll dig into those each. But let's, let's finish out the chapter, because really I see Jesus undoing each of the temptations of the enemy in the, in the close of chapter 4. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, 
the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. In this chapter, we've encountered many people who are in need of a Savior. There's people facing imminent threat, people that are oppressed under a tyrannical government, the Roman Empire. There's people that are facing a looming catastrophe that's to come in the future. It's not an immediate threat, but sometimes that's the diagnosis of a disease or a sickness. Sometimes it's very apparent that you need a Savior, like when you're drowning and you cry out for help and the lifeguard is there. At other times, it's something coming down the road. In fact, there's people that you know, aren't mentioned in this chapter, but people who aren't even aware of the danger that they're in, but they need a Savior too. God says that there's one danger that's greater than any other threat or catastrophe we might face. Today, the news headline was of another tsunami that's affected Indonesia. There have been earthquakes uh, where my sister lives up in Anchorage, Alaska. You know, so there's these natural catastrophes that come, that, that sort of danger. God says there's a, a danger even greater than those natural physical threats. There's, there's a danger that's worse than failing a course. A danger that's worse than a broken marriage or a foreclosure or a bankruptcy. There's danger that's even greater than a diagnosis of cancer. Even worse than public speaking. A danger that's greater than all those things. And this is a danger that affects not just this life, but the eternal life to come. And that danger is sin. And just like some people in the story were aware of that imminent threat and that looming danger and other people were completely unaware, that's really how it is with sin today. There's some people that are aware of that pain that sin brings to us, like it's an immediate negative consequence on our lives and on those we love. There's other people who just kind of suppress that and they go about their lives don't really take time to look at how sin is destroying our potential and our future. And yet God sees and He knows and He says you need a Savior whether you admit that or not. And that's why the Savior has come. That's why the Christmas story exists. And as we hear, as we hear the words of Satan himself coming and confronting Jesus, setting up this power struggle, you begin to look at that and then the actions and words of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see really clearly some of the needs that the Savior comes to meet. The first temptation that the enemy brings to Jesus is the temptation to turn these rocks into bread. Jesus is there devoting himself to prayer and to worship. 
And Satan comes and says, you know what? Why don't you focus instead on some of this worldly practical needs? Feed those appetites that are natural and base instincts for all of us. There's a temptation in those words of Satan to worship the created rather than the Creator. Look to these things that satisfy in this life. Take matters into your own hands. Be satisfied with this worldly things. Satiate the appetites of this world rather than hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And Jesus responds to that temptation by quoting, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. His appetites, his desires are set on the kingdom of heaven, not on the things of this earth. And I don't think it's coincidental that as Jesus goes and calls his first disciples, we we find them at work. They're doing this worldly things with their hands. They're not bad things. They're mending nets. They're in a boat. A couple of the brothers are in a boat with their dad. They're earning a livelihood, working the nine to five, putting food on the table. And yet, as Jesus comes to them, he, he says, guys, I'm going to save you from a life of mediocrity, a life of just making it till Friday, a life of just paying the bills, a life of just eating bread, because there's something that will satisfy you even more than this life that you've known. And he calls them to not just fish for fish, but to go fishing for men. And that's not just a gender-specific word, but to go fishing for people, people who are in need of a Savior, to go and spread the good news that there is a King, and His kingdom is for real, and His kingdom is the place where you can find abundant life. He goes and talks to Peter and James. He says, he used to fish for fish, now you're going to fish for men. Leave your nets. He talks to the brothers James and John and he says, guys, your future is not in Zebedee and Sons Fishing Company. Leave your dad, leave the boat, and come follow me. And these men are willing to take the risk to leave what they've known and that mediocre but secure life that they've known and take the risk of following after Jesus. And it's an adventure that they'll never regret. Maybe today as as we're entering the Christmas season, you are looking at the needs that you have. Maybe you're finding some dissatisfaction in pursuing things and stuff. And you're wondering if maybe there's something more than just money, status, possessions, entertainment. If that's you today, you need the Savior. Because the Savior comes to save us from mediocrity and to save us for a life of purpose. That's the the awesome thing about our Savior, Jesus, is it's not just a saving from, but it's always with a purpose as well. So salvation from a a mediocre, living for this world way of living, and then a saving for abundant life. Life that's filled up with meaning and significance. So the enemy moves on from that first temptation and now brings Jesus to a new location. Not coincidentally, this is at the center of worship. He brings him to the pinnacle of the temple in the holy city. This is a prominent place where people would come to worship. 
And there's a few temptations woven together here. I think one is, is the recognition. One is the spiritual power. But really all of these are in the same category of living in a way that's opposed to God's glory and His purposes. It's a temptation to choose the path of sin. To manipulate God for your own purposes and ends. To do things your way. To draw glory to yourself. And Jesus, although He is God in the flesh, He exists to bring glory to the Father. He's modeling to us what it is to not live for our own glory, but to live to bring glory to Him. And so Jesus rejects that temptation, and He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, later, as He begins His ministry, there in chapter or verses 12-16, through 16, we hear a quotation from Isaiah And really, verse 16 is the key there. It says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, for them a light has dawned. This is the light that illuminates the darkness, that place that we were, where we were in opposition to God and His plans, where we were living to glorify ourselves, to lift ourselves up, to increase our fame. And to move from that place of darkness where there's never satisfaction, it's a, it's a black hole that just sucks us deeper in. To shine the light of God's truth that really the only place we're going to find lasting contentment and joy is with a God-centered worldview, not a me-centered worldview. I'll never be happy. I'll never find peace and contentment down that path. And yet the enemy comes and he whispers his lies Sometimes we believe Him. So Jesus comes and He brings light for those living in darkness. He shines a light on those living in death's shadow. I wonder, have you contemplated the darkness of your sin? Have you taken a good hard look at that self-destructive pattern that brings the regrets from the past? That you feel like you're stuck in a rut. The sin that hurts you and hurts others. You know, it's easy to to point a condemning finger at someone else and to look at their sin, especially when it affects us personally, right? But I think God's Word invites us to take a look in the mirror. Say, what's my sin issue? What are those things that have trapped me and snared me, that have kept me from fulfilling the potential that God created me for? That innocence that I had as a child to where I am now an independent person, an autonomous person, holding God at arm's length. Because when we take a good hard look at that sin, it reminds each of us we need a Savior. And that's a good place to be. That's a good place to be when, when we're, you know, if, if you're drowning and struggling and the lifeguard's saying, I'm going to come in and rescue you, and you're, you're saying, no, I'm okay sputtering, gasping for breath, living in denial. All all it takes is waking up to the reality of our need for a Savior. And that's where we are in our own sin, left to our own devices, unable to help ourselves, unable to fix that sin problem that we have, and yet God comes to save us from sin and for a life committed to glorifying Him and blessing and serving others. Freed from that path of darkness, the light dawning 
and bringing hope and joy and forgiveness. And today, as we, at the end of service, take communion, we're going to give thanks for the reality that the price of our sins has been paid decisively on the cross. It's been dealt with, it's been cleansed, and our King has established His kingdom in our hearts and in our lives, and He's coming back again. So today, if you don't know King Jesus, if you didn't know Him before you came in, there's good news. You need a Savior. The Savior has come. The sin problem has been dealt with by Him, and that gift is yours today. The third temptation that the enemy brings to Jesus there in the desert is in verses 8 and following. He takes Jesus now to a very high mountain where they can overlook the region. And the temptation is that all these earthly kingdoms, all their splendor, all their glory, it can be yours, Jesus. Look at all that this world has to offer. Power, wealth, splendor. All it will cost you is your soul. And I wonder today how many people would sell their soul to the devil in exchange for all this world has to offer. Sadly, I think most people, I think given that choice, most people would, would, would yield to this temptation. And Jesus decisively and, and boldly confronts Satan and, and rejects that temptation. He says, be gone, Satan, get lost. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And in, in, this, in this faithfulness, in this ability to withstand all of the temptations that Satan could come up with, you know, this, this is the big kahuna, the final one. Everything that this world has to offer, I can deliver it to you. If you will just choose to turn your back on the kingdom of God and instead bow down to me, serve me. Really, that power struggle had been set up in chapter 2 as Herod, he's, he's introduced in Matthew 2 as the king, King Herod. He hears that from the, from the wise men that there's been a king born, they've been following a star, and he says, I need to put an end to this, and he kills all the babies there in Bethlehem. But right in chapter 2, I'll just read one verse for you today. Verse 19 of Matthew 2 is pretty key. It says, but when Herod died. Pretty short-lived little spark there, right? This is, this is the big King Herod that's going to put an end to the Son of God, to the kingdom of heaven unfolding before him, to this threat to his own power. Herod represents the kingdoms of this earth. And he's already dead halfway through chapter 2 of Matthew. Not much of a threat, is he? And that's the, the, the beauty of Jesus' response to Satan's temptation. Satan says, I can give you all the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus scoffs at that idea. Oh, really? All of these temporal kingdoms, all these kings that die, they, they lord it over, they exert power. No, I'm coming to declare the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 17, we, we hear the beginning of Jesus' sermon. His first sermon recorded here in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. What was his sermon? A lot shorter than mine. One sentence. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, 17. 
Repent means to turn, to do a 180. So, you know, if you had been going after the kingdoms of this earth, their power, their splendor, their glory, you'd been uh, under the tyranny of people like King Herod, turn the other way because the kingdom of heaven is here. And he comes to announce and declare and proclaim the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. That's the gift that we celebrate at Christmas time. In a God-centered worldview that there actually is a God. He is actually supreme. He's the only one worthy of glory and honor. He came. He's still here. He's coming again. That's the good news of the Christmas story. There is a king and his kingdom has been established. And that means no more bondage to sin. No more living in this world's mediocre partial satisfaction that comes and goes. No more tyranny from the oppressive structures that we have established here as humans. There is a Savior. And maybe today, all that this world has to offer has left you empty. And Satan's twisted promises whispered in your ear sound really hollow and empty. And there's a longing for something more. And the freedom and the peace and the grace that Jesus is mentioning in his proclamation of the kingdom of heaven. And if that's you today, you need the Savior. Because he comes to save us from oppression and for freedom in God's kingdom. The final message here in chapter 4 as Jesus is now beginning his ministry not just in not just proclaiming with his words but also with his actions we, we heard uh, here as we read together the last three verses as Jesus is going throughout the entire region and he's saving people from brokenness people who have been hearing a lot of bad news a diagnosis a condition seeing family members suffering. All kinds of bad news there in the last three verses. But when the Savior comes and He sees the diseases and the sicknesses, He sees the pain, sees those that are under spiritual attack, all those who need healing and deliverance, He brings a message of good news to confront that bad news. Maybe today you, you can't identify with, with the characters there at the end of Matthew 4. You're saying, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much on top of the world today. I'm feeling good. Got a good outlook. My future's bright. Awesome. I'm happy for you. But I'll tell you what. In this world, you will have hardship. And so I don't, I don't want to be the bearer of gloom and doom. If you're on top of the world today, a day will come when you will be broken in some area of your life. Maybe today it's just a weariness from carrying a burden that's too heavy for you to lift. And if you fit into one of those categories, you need a Savior. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's a maybe a term that we're not familiar with because most of us are not farmers today, but if you yoke two animals together, 
if you have a young a young ox or or a bull that you, cow, cow that I don't know. Do you, what, Mac, help me out here. Let's go, let's stick with the ox. I, I was I was safe there. You get a young ox that's going to learn how do you pull something through a field. You're going to hook them up to a a stronger ox who knows how to go in a straight line, right? And that's the, the imagery that Jesus is sharing. You know that 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 yoke that would a piece of wood that goes over both animals. It says, "Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That sounds good to you today. You need a Savior. Because He comes to save us from burdens and brokenness and for resting in Him. Learning from Him. Walking with Him. Finding rest for your soul. I think in that promise in Matthew 11, one key the, 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 the picture is complete because there is some work involved, right? When we think of rest, you know, when I think of rest, I remember our 10th anniversary at, a, at a, a, an all-inclusive resort down in Cancun. You know, just way more food than you could possibly eat, kicking back in the sun, doing absolutely nothing. But that's not really the picture that Jesus brings, the, the kind of rest, because really that sort of rest is fun for about four days, you know, but I can't imagine a life, I, mean, I, I can actually imagine it. <laughs> but I know down that path there would not be lasting joy and satisfaction and meaning. Jesus says, no, there is a yoke. There is some marching to do. There's some pulling required, but I'm walking beside you. You will find satisfaction. It will be a burden you can handle because I'm walking with you down that path. I'm teaching you and instructing you and you will find rest at a soul level. That real satisfying, deep sort of rest that comes with walking with Him. I hope today that you are aware of your need for the Savior. You know, it's not a point in time in the past. If you... If Jesus is your Savior and you have a spiritual birthday that you can point to on the calendar and say, that was the day that I heard a sermon like this about my need for a Savior and I opened up my hands and my heart and I received that gift that only Jesus can bring. Man, that is a reason to celebrate. But you still need a Savior today. You need a Savior from the past and for walking with Him daily. We need Him every hour. We need Him this Christmas season. And let's give thanks as we celebrate communion together today. But you know, there's a whole world out there. And there may be some people in the room here today who need to know that there is a Savior. Some of them are aware of their needs. Others are going through life hoping for the best. And they're not yet aware of the imminent threat or that looming danger. They're not fully aware of their own sin issue. And our job is to carry on the message of our Savior to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is near. To proclaim that there is freedom for the captives. There is the recovery of sight for the blind. To proclaim the good news of the kingdom and the Savior that has come. 
And so today, part of our, what we do as we take communion is that proclamation. We, in taking that bread that signifies Jesus' broken body and the cup which signifies his blood, we're declaring our allegiance to the king of the entire universe who came as a baby and lived a faithful life and died on the cross and was risen from the grave and is ushered in this kingdom that we are a part of if we belong to him. And so today, let's, let's prepare our hearts for communion. Our worship team is going to come and lead us. And so, you know, we don't require that you be a member of our church. I know we've got a lot of out-of-town out family members and guests. We're glad to have you here for the holidays, and we invite you to take communion with us. The only requirements we have are what God's Word has. And that says that we, first of all, be a believer, be a follower of Jesus. And secondly, that we examine our hearts today. And that doesn't mean to make sure that we are worthy of communion, but it means that we're discerning the body of Christ, that we are remembering that we're a part of a Christian community today. And we remember the gift of Jesus' shed blood, and we look forward to his return. And so those are, those are our requirements as a church, just what God spells out in his word. But let me, let me pray as we prepare to take communion, and then we'll go to the tables by the doors here. Lord God, we thank you for the great gift that you give. We thank you for a season to celebrate and to rejoice. We thank you for all the festivity of this season. And yet, Lord, today we're also aware of the dark part of the Christmas story, that there are things like tyranny and temptation and sin and like the, the voices crying out and weeping in Matthew 2 during the Christmas story. There are hurts and pains that are difficult to contemplate in our world today. And Lord, this Christmas season, we are aware of our need for the Savior. And we give you thanks. Thank you that you save us from just making it through the day. Thank you that you save us from the snare of sin. That you save us from the tyranny and oppression that exists in our world. That you save us from brokenness. And that, Lord, you prepare us to be parts of your body, vessels to be filled up by your spirit and useful to you in your kingdom. Thank you that you prepare us for your return. Lord, we want to be ready when you come again to have been working faithfully in your vineyard. Thank you that those that you call, call you also equip, that you walk beside us in the tasks that you call us to. And Lord, today as we take communion, we acknowledge our need for the Savior. We give you thanks that the price of sin has been paid, that you have made a way for us to walk with you. And Lord, today we commit to declaring that message this Christmas season and throughout the year. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.